If we're serious about supporting patients with chronic health conditions, we have to acknowledge what's working and what isn't. The idea and practice of shared decision-making has made a difference in how physicians and other providers open up space with patients to talk about the pros and cons and risks and benefits of various treatments, say for high cholesterol or high blood pressure or to manage diabetes. Patients themselves are, in many instances, bringing a lot of their own knowledge and experience to this conversation. But these discussions don't always get at all the issues. Even more, there's a lot of frustration these days on both ends of shared decision-making that maybe there's something the other isn't quite getting. So what's missing? We're going to take a look on this edition of WIHI, and I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly, and also you can find us later conveniently on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Many of you joining WIHI today are familiar with the idea of minimally disruptive medicine as a core principle of shared decision-making. It's the brainchild of Dr. Victor Montori and his team at the Mayo Clinic, and they've been working hard to further it. But there's a restlessness, a really interesting restlessness amongst this group to really, really get the concept, the practice, and the needed lens right, and to keep innovating. And if you're Dr. Montori, you talk in terms of things like a patient revolution that healthcare is going to have to join. So let's get right to it. Right after IHI's John Gothier reminds us of how and reminds all of you how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI, by streaming audio coming through your speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause your WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. And we also welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets so we can engage with others in this discussion on social media. So some brief introductions, more information on our website, uh, their own organization's websites, and also on our bio slides today. On the phone from Minnesota, Casey Bomer is a health services researcher in the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit at Mayo Clinic, referred to as CARE, Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit. She's a member of the Minimally Disruptive Medicine Working Group, and she has many responsibilities. Welcome, Casey. Are you there, Casey? Hello. Hello. Great. Glad that you're here. Dave Paul is secretary of the Mayo Clinic's Care Unit Patient Advisory Group. He has dealt with chronic health issues throughout his life and believes that the principles of minimally disruptive medicine are essential for hope rather than desperation. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Madge. Uh, pleasure to be on the show. Wonderful. Glad you're with us. Here in the studio, Victor Montori is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, an endocrinologist and health services researcher. He is a recognized expert in evidence-based medicine and shared decision-making, and he's the developer of the concept of minimally disruptive medicine. Welcome to IHI and WIHI, Victor. 
Thanks for having me. Okay, and Andrea Capsinal, an IHI Vice President, is on the Research and Development Team here and leads major IHI initiatives. The current focus of her work includes leadership for improvement and building effective networks to foster innovation and regional health improvement. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Madge. Nice to be here. All right, we're going to get underway. A reminder to everybody, use the chat. Um, remember to chat to all participants as opposed to all attendees. So if you do to all participants, We'll really all see your comments. Otherwise, we may miss some of them. And we'll get to that at about the halfway mark. And don't forget that all references today are captured in a handy resource document that we do post to the website. So don't despair if somebody mentions something. We'll grab uh, the full uh, title and link for you. So Dave, Paul, we're going to start with you. There is no single story, I, I suggest, that can define our discussion today, but I'm going to guess that yours will help us appreciate why we need to do something very different to support you and patients like you. So thanks for sharing uh, some of your experience, Dave, and welcome again. Thank you. I hope I can enlighten people out there uh, as to some of the uh, details involved in, uh, in chronic illness. You know, as a patient-centered research advisory team here at Mayo, we realize that patients have different burdens. Uh, when chronic illness occurs, patients are often stuck trying to manage career, family, illness. Uh, retired patients feel betrayed. Things were supposed to go better than this in retirement. Some patients are well off financially, others are not. Uh, what we've realized is that uh, we have something in common, and that is we have the work of being a patient, something we hadn't planned for. Uh, when my health declined, uh, like many, I did not see it coming. Uh, prior to this period, all I knew about medical treatment was you get sick, you go to the doctor, get a shot or prescription, and in a few days you're back to normal. I had no clue about the work that would be involved uh, dealing with multiple chronic illnesses and trying to accept that new reality. You know, just getting diagnosed in the beginning was probably the biggest stressor. Uh, I didn't know what I was facing. I spent a great deal of time on the Internet, like many people do. Friends and families had suggestions because they knew somebody that had this or that medical uh, condition or symptoms. Uh, I wondered if I had a terminal illness. Was I, um, you know, going to live or, 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 you know, die as a result of this, this situation? I was in another part of the country at the time, and my doctor complained to me that he did not get paid to fight with my insurance company to get outside referrals. My doctor brought this tension into the conversation with me. I was simply wanting a diagnosis. My doctor eventually let me go, telling me I could uh, pick up my medical records the next morning much to my uh, dismay. Another burden was the effort it took as I desperately tried to keep my career. There are only so many sick days available. My employer understood my need to get to doctor appointments, but each time I had to make arrangements for colleagues to cover me while I was gone. Eventually, chronic illness forced me out of my career. My wife became the main income earner. We were now a single uh, income household. The financial adjustment was huge as we spent a great deal of time and money getting back and forth from doctor appointments. Along with chronic illness, for many people comes the necessity for medications. Uh, always the question, is insurance going to cover this? For a great deal of time, my wife and I paid $600 a month out of pocket as I watched my retirement savings go down the drain. Uh, medical uh, Medication side effects also became an issue. Uh, when I could not tolerate a certain drug, the symptoms were often worse than the original problem. So these were some of the burdens that I that I met up with um, as a result of you know, going into that realm of chronic illness. Um, so basically what's different for me now is I'm part of a research advisory team. We meet with Dr. Montori, with Casey, with care unit members, and other researchers at Mayo and we offer feedback as we learn ways to improve the patient experience, to ease the burden of the work of being a patient. Um, you know, when you have this kind of partnership, uh, we've seen where valuable questions can be answered, such as, what are you struggling with most right now? Which medication makes the most sense for you? 
and do the doctor's suggestions meet the patient's capacity for the best outcome? And finally, uh, what minimally disruptive medicine has done for me, currently the number of medications I'm on are down to a minimum. Now this is a result of ongoing conversations I've had with my physician, much different than no conversation in simply treating symptoms, writing prescriptions. Uh, through the good efforts of one of my doctors, I have a mutually agreed upon method for contacting her if and when I need to be hospitalized. We both understand what when that need occurs. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, it's much different than what I've had in the past. And then during a recent visit with one of my doctors, I was sharing how frustrated I was about a certain aspect of my health. Uh, I was spending energy looking back at the last six months, and he mentioned how he recently had a serious orthopedic injury when he fell down the stairs in his home. And he learned that he had to focus on what was going on right now, including walking down the stairs. Uh, he also shared that in his life, often it was when he was the most frustrated that change occurred, using frustration as a motivation. Imagine that, the doctor sharing his experience as the patient. At that moment, I felt the value of the doctor-patient partnership, and I left his office really feeling empowered, and I hope the message today can empower people out there that are struggling with chronic illness. Hey, Dave, thank you so much. I really appreciate. Um, we are always mindful on WIHI that people have to boil down uh, a lot of life experience and knowledge uh, into sort of these short slots. So we appreciate uh, that you were able to do that, and I hope we can learn more from you uh, throughout the hour. So thanks again. Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so Victor Montori, um, we're kind of, uh, with some of the folks here, I think, who've joined WIHI have had some awareness, and that's a good thing of minimally disruptive medicine, but I don't think it'll hurt at all for you to define that again for us and uh, why you've been championing it and uh, what's in it. We've just gotten one nice uh, nugget here from Dave about what's in it uh, for patients and clinicians, but... Uh, since this concept came out in 2009, I can't think of anyone who doesn't hear about this who thinks, ooh, that's a real shift uh, in many ways. That opens up things very differently. So thank you again. Um, yes, Matt. The minimally disruptive medicine is, first of all, it's medicine. So it is, um, uh, it is a form of caring uh, for and about people that is uh, very mindful of the uh, work of being a patient that that work requires um, uh, time, attention, energy, uh, capacity that the patient has to uh, draw from activities that normally are associated with much more meaning, like living their lives and uh, being a parent, a volunteer in the community, a teacher, a worker, a, 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 a caregiver. And um, so if, if minimum disruptive medicine seeks to right-size the uh, amount of work associated with the care of the patient's conditions uh, to the context of the patients, the, the um, available capacity, but ideally freeing up capacity so that patients can live their life and pursue their life's hopes and dreams without having health care slow them down or, or hinder that possibility. So it draws attention. This is different from regular medicine. And it draws attention to the fact that patients are not full-time patients. They are full-time people that happen to have a healthcare problem that draws away from what they want to do in their life. And our job is to try to ret return them to full function or as close to that as possible with the smallest possible disruption in their life. Synonyms sometimes help. Um, people have referred to this as Goldilocks care. You know, not too much, not too little, you know, just right. Uh, people have talked about uh, is like geriatrics, you know, because of the attention in, in, in older people to, you know, uh, facilitating function, uh, but it's geriatrics for younger people. Or it's like palliative care for people who are not dying in the sense that it's focused on symptoms and improvement in, over, in function uh, as a primary goals uh, rather than trying to overcome a particular disease process. Uh, and, and there are several synonyms like that that we've actually, we keep a running list in our, in our website. Um, 
some people have said that we have the wrong name, that this should, this should not be min minimally disruptive, but rather maximally supportive medicine. But we've, we like minimally disruptive, or in Spanish, minimally impertinent medicine, in the sense that we really want to emphasize the fact that medicine health problems in illness interrupts, and healthcare interrupts. And the real trick is to minimize the interruptions caused by illness with the smallest possible interruption in people's lives caused by healthcare. All right. Let me just ask you, uh, we're going to hear from a member of your team, another member, Casey, about some of the tools used here to get at this information. Um, can you describe, uh, just one more question, just in a sort of nutshell, you're an uh, endocrinologist working a lot with diabetes. That's partly what got you going uh, on this. And maybe you could almost give us a sense of sort of what's a before and after. I mean, a, a kind of prevailing way, since so many people do deal with diabetes, and what's a kind of a, a new way, given this model? Yeah. Um, one example might be, a, a, as an endocrinologist, I have patients with diabetes referred to me who are not doing well. And not doing well often means that the sugars are very high. And um, when they come to see me, the expectation is that we will intensify the therapy so that the sugars will become lower and you'll have better diabetes control. But the work of getting the sugars to be lower usually is exponentially greater than the work that the patient has been doing up to this point. For instance, patients sometimes get referred to, to me with taking two pills a day plus an injection of insulin at night, and I find myself that the next course of action is perhaps to start them on a program where they inject three times a day, they check their sugars before each meal, figure out how many carbohydrates in the meal plus the sugar they had, how, use that information to figure out how much insulin to take with each meal, plus take an, in, an insulin shot at night, and then analyze every three to five days whether they're doing it right. And this amount of work um, will be given to patients as the next logical step, now go and do it. Um, and it will be very frustrating when those patients will come back and they would implement the program in a partial way. A minimally disruptive medicine approach in that situation will actually look to see what capacities the patient has available to them um, and to implement these, these programs, but often we'll recognize that intensification of the therapy is not necessary. What is necessary is support of the patients in their own capacity. So maybe the patient is alone, um, maybe the patient is not well educated about uh, what they could be doing with the program they have on board, maybe there's some financial issues. The, the program that they were on, actually the patient was not able to afford, and they were taking a fourth of the dose, and so of course that's why they were not getting to the outcome and so forth. So the uh, Casey who uh, is on the call, here uh, will tell us perhaps a bit more about some of the tools that we've uh, developed to bring those issues to the forefront and such that it, we don't have to now just intensify because patients are not achieving their goals, but rather understand first why is it that they got to this point and what is the smallest possible healthcare footprint we can have in people's lives and yet achieve uh, their objectives. Okay, that sounds really good and thanks, uh, that's, that example is helpful. All right, Casey Bomer, uh, thanks again for joining us. So what are the things providers can learn about from patients um, that, uh, or learn about patients and from patients that kind of can locate chronic health problems in real lives, as Victor is uh, illustrating and as Dave uh, did as well? And what has the team developed to help guide that inquiry? And thanks again for being part of the program. Casey. Thanks so much, Matt. Um, so our team, we realized that we needed to bring this to the conversation between patients and clinicians and the health teams that they were working with. Um, and so we went out into the field and did observations of clinical encounters of patients in their homes, of patients in support groups. And we also dived deeply into the literature around the patient experience around this idea of capacity in dealing with chronic illness. And what we found through those first explorations was that the patient's capacity was a lot more than just simply the resources they had at the fingertips to make this plan work that they had been given. But it also encompassed their biography. So were they struggling with uh, finding a happy retirement alongside this chronic illness? or being a successful career woman um, alongside their chronic illness? 
It also encompassed their resources, indeed, um, their financial resources, their physical resources, for example. Their capacity involved the environment that they were dealing with and that they were interacting with. It involved the work and whether they were actually able to realize that work that they needed to do in their life. So were they able to go to the pharmacy? Were they able to pick up the kids? And those little actions were building on their capacity. And then finally, it, it had to do with their social networks as well. So their social networks of their family, their friends, their colleagues, but also the social interactions that they were getting in healthcare, whether they were negative or positive, influenced their capacity to act towards their health. So with those observations and that lens in mind, we set out to create uh, ICANN. And this tool, we this is the ninth prototype. So we developed prototypes, put them in actual clinical encounters, and watched to see what happened. Um, and this one we landed on because it was generating the types of conversations that we've been talking about today that really illustrate how life and healthcare are working together and how we can make it better. So there's two parts to the ICANN discussion aid. The first part are three questions that clinicians can use with their patients. They can use all three or they can use one. And the reason we gave people questions was that because in those observations, we realized that the way you opened the conversation made a difference in whether life was able to come into that conversation. So for example, if a clinician asked, what can I do for you today? That situated the patient and the clinician both in their healthcare roles. And clinicians can do things about the pain in my knee or can refill a prescription, for example. But why as a patient would I bring up my financial situation that my clinician can actually do nothing about? Um, so changing the questions was fundamentally important to this discussion aid. So the first three, or the three questions, the first is, what are you doing when you're not sitting here with me? And that gives a glimpse into the patient's everyday life. What's happening? The second is, where do you find the most joy in your life? And that gives a glimpse into first, whether the patient is struggling with this biography issue of reframing their life in such a way that this chronic illness fits. And if they've gone through that process and they're, and they're feeling good, um, if they can tell you where they're finding joy, how can we work together to connect healthcare back to that piece or at least not overwhelm it? And then finally, what's on your mind today, which is much more focused on the visit today, but doesn't necessarily have that what can I do for you feel to it. Now, the second part of the ICANN discussion aid, the patient fills out while they're waiting for the person that they're going to see to come into the room. It usually takes them about three minutes. The first column asks, are these areas of your life a satisfaction, a burden, or both? And that's really to get at some of these elements of the patient's capacity that they're either drawing on or might be hindering uh, getting in the way of them caring for their health. Then the second column is, what are the things that your doctors or clinic have asked you to do to care for your health? And are those things a help, a burden, or both? And so this gets an idea of how is healthcare working in your life? Are there things that are burdensome that maybe we should reconsider? So what ICANN does is it doesn't provide all the answers, but it looks at the conversation completely differently. And so some things that we've heard when we ask patients, for example, what stands out to you in this, in this part that you filled is things like, well, would you believe that I have to be a patient four out of the five days of the week? And I can't do what I enjoy in my retirement, which is going to plays with my girlfriends because I'm at, I'm at a healthcare center all the time. Or what stands out to me is that it looks like I'm a really good diabetes patient right now because my numbers have gone down, I've lost all this weight, but what's really going on is that eating well is a struggle because my wife who cooks the meals was recently diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. So those are the types of things that we saw illuminated when, when clinicians and patients used the tool together. Now, I can, when you use it longitudinally with patients, over a relationship can open up places where 
specific shared decision-making points might occur. So there's a, a treatment that maybe is too burdensome. Let's consider whether that's necessary or whether we should switch. Um, it can open up potentially referrals to community resources or other members of the healthcare team. And it can also up, open up potential for a referral to what I call capacity coaching, which we're working to develop with some members of our team at Mayo that really marries some of the traditional questions and approach of wellness coaching with this different model of healthcare that encompasses patient capacity and treatment burden so that hopefully we can build patient capacity not only to act towards their own health, but so that they have more time and space to fill those roles that they want to play where they're finding joy in their life. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, much appreciated, Casey. And I want to mention to everyone, we're going to chat in. Um, there's a couple ways you can get to uh, the minimally disruptive resource medicine, res uh, excuse me, resources uh, website views. But this tool is is on there. The and the whole I can uh, um, you know um, effort here and initiative. So it's something that people can download. We'll all, we're also included in our resources. But it's something that folks can look at. Uh, use, modify, um, start testing some things out. Um, I also want to remember to tell anyone who's joining by phone only and you're not on the computer, you can get all the slides and references uh, by emailing info at IHI.org. So thanks, Casey. All right, we're going to hear now from Andrea Capsinol, uh here at IHI. Um, Andrea is among those passionate about, I think, this uh, discussion. We're, we're thrilled that Victor's been with us today uh, for a while now at IHI. We had a great afternoon, an earlier afternoon session, uh, and we all think this issue of shared decision-making and kind of power imbalance and really understanding what matters to patients, uh, which was a discussion we had on the January 14th WHI. It's all quite related. So, Andrew, we've got, in some ways, we're drilling down into micro kinds of encounters, but pulling on that the stuff of people's lives and very sometimes very macro issues about what's going on in various communities that perhaps are even contributing uh, to the burden of being impatient. So that can be a lot of upstream issues as well. So how how can walk us between minimally disruptive medicine and some of these larger ambitions that we're all working on around population health and the triple aim? Thanks. That's simple, right? Real simple. Okay, good. Um, well, minimally disruptive medicine and shared decision-making are excellent, excellent examples of a larger group of things that, um, that we do in the care process to engage patients and their families and people in their care. Um, and uh, the question is, well, what does this have to do with the triple aim and population health? And just to remind people that haven't been thinking about it recently, the triple aim is this idea that our aims should be focused on uh, the care experience and reducing costs of health care and the health and well-being of the population. And when you optimize these together, you get to a state where we really want to be, where people only get care when they need it, that the aim is to return people to health um, or keep them healthy. And, um, and there are many um, communities, organizations, governments that are pursuing these aims. And it's quite clear that these approaches to fit care to uh, the circumstances of the people that are using the system are absolutely essential to return people to health, to return people to their lives, to stop uh, giving treatments, medicines, care that's unwanted, unneeded, doesn't fit with the circumstances in their lives. Um, and so the secret here is to make it very widespread. And that pushes us very much toward the goal of, of better population health, which is what we're here for today. And there are some ideas about how to make it um, more widespread. One is more people, more caregivers, more carers and professionals uh, use it, use it all the time. And I'm sure we'll get some more discussion about that. The other is to have a push 
um, from the community, just like we do with the conversation project, that people start to expect uh, their healthcare providers to um, to wonder how to fit healthcare into their circumstances and minimize the questions and minimize the confusion or the difficulties that people have in healthcare. So that's where we have to go. The, the link to population health is clear. The link to patient experience is clear. We think also reducing costs of care. It's just a matter of making it part of our culture instead of something that we're just learning to do in a few places. Okay, thanks very much, Andrea. We're going to go to chat in just a minute, and I want everyone who is uh, listening and with us today to start thinking about what questions you have for our panelists, what's on your minds. Uh, does this resonate for you? Is this something that you're uh, trying to do in your own uh, organizations, perhaps uh, by another name? Um, I loved, Victor, some of the synonyms you threw out there, Goldilocks Care. Uh, geriatrics, and we've already got a question where somebody is asking, how does this uh, differ or similar, actually, to palliative care? Um, but I'm, I'm curious about uh, the degree to which, uh, Andrea, you feel um, that this is a shift or is it kind of more radical in, in thinking? Because I remember when um, Victor spoke at a IHI conference a few years ago, and numbers of practitioners uh, got up in the audience, and they were very inspired by Victor's talk, but they were very, very worried that they were not going to be delivering proper care uh, to patients, that this was kind of throwing out all the rules about how you treat people and that at some level providers know best? It's a really good question. I have, this is a moment where I get to shout out to my physician who's been my physician for 23 years and knows me really well. And he's been doing this with me since I met him. And he's practicing what I consider to be good old-time medicine, really understanding me and understanding how to, how to make care fit. So, but for many people who have just um, been in the business of having to hurry through care and send things through and tell people what to do and expect them to do it, this is a shift. It's a culture change for them. And um, so in that way, I think we are actually trying to pull people out of their comfort zone and into something that is better that they will like, but they don't know it yet. Okay, thank you. Um, all right. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, everyone. All right. You heard from uh, Dave, Casey. There went my screen. Not sure. Okay, John, maybe you can help me out here with my screen. My screen seems to have gone somewhere. Okay. Well, um, we'll work on it. And uh, just a reminder, <laughs> if you're going to be chatting in, I see some folks have started that ask your questions to uh, make sure that the send to bar is at all participants. And that way, everybody listening uh, on WebEx can see your questions and comments. All right. Here we go. All right. There was a question, Victor. Let's let's uh, go to you for that uh, first one or among the first questions that came in. Palliative care. Um, the fact that some of this reminds people maybe of the best ideas that come from palliative palliative care reminds me that people often thought hospice care was a model uh, that might apply as well. So similarities, differences. Yeah, no, I think uh, palliative, the palliative care uh, folks would, um, uh, would like us to think that their form of medicine applies to any uh, moment in life and any moment in which healthcare uh, can take place. Uh, but it tends to be applied in situations where the patient is experiencing a, uh, a lethal or um, uh, advanced disease process. And minimally disruptive medicine essentially takes that idea of focusing on function and symptoms to the care of patients uh, with uh, chronic conditions in a routine sort of way. And so to that extent, it's an extension, if I may, of palliative care outside of its usual comfort zone and an application beyond it. But it's not just to advance uh, the control of symptoms and to improvement of function, but it also allows us to, uh, it reminds us that what we're really trying to do is improve the quality of life and ability to do things of people no matter what their health situation is. We have to remind ourselves that everybody, uh, sort of at points in their life, they, they, all they want is the moon. You know, they, they want to go places. They want to achieve their hopes and dreams. And, um, and the, the, when they seek medical care, they should be in a position 
to uh, see clearly how the medical care they're getting and how the programs of treatment that they're exposed to and implementing, how are they, those programs going to help them achieve those goals? So another point of, of, uh, of similarity between palliative care and minimally disruptive medicine is this clear uh, focus on not only the patient situation, but where, uh, what are the goals that the patients have for their lives. Okay, thank you very much. Lots of questions coming in fast and furious, and I will try to get to as many as I can. Um, somebody is wondering if uh, the ICANN tool, maybe Casey, I can ask you this, is being used um, in the realm of patient-reported outcomes? Is it being tracked? Uh, kind of how how you're in some ways tracking uh, the uptake with that and, and how it's being used. There was another... Um, Somebody says, it seems to me that the ICANN tool is building upon the work of Tom Bodenheimer's self-management support, helping to find out more about how our patients so we can support them in areas that may be outside of health care in order to improve their health. So I'm, I'm sure lots of these things are building on some other really great ideas. But maybe, Casey, you could just address uh, that question about um, sort of, you know, ha ha whether this is tied to patient-reported outcomes and being tracked. Sure. So um, ICANN is really interesting because I think it, it differs quite a bit from uh, the things that are in this space to measure some of these ideas. So we actually set out to create something that would create a conversation that supported these ideas. So when you look at ICANN, at first it seems like, wow, that would, you know, I could use that as a measurement tool. But it really, what what ICANN tells you doesn't come alive except in the conversation. Um, and so we are working, uh, I just embarked on a project with one of the VAs um, to look at how to best capture some of those stories that come out of ICANN beyond just the tool itself, um, how to document that in their medical record. Um, and I think that in terms of, of how can we measure some of these things, um, we're really measuring whether we're moving the needle on things like treatment burden or, for example, patient disruption from their health and, and health care uh, or their quality of life. Those are the things that we're really trying to measure whether we're moving. ICANN is just a vehicle to create that conversation to help us get there. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, go ahead, Victor. Yes. There was another question um, asking how does MDM uh, connect with quality metrics and how, what changes in quality metrics would be necessary? And we've been playing with that idea. Of, uh, there is a model called the cumulative complexity model. It's on our website. You can look at it. And uh, one of the ways of uh, filling out uh, uh, how or thinking through how we might uh, measure quality have to do with that model. First, this balance of workload, the patient work, and patient capacity. Uh, there are now uh, are emerging some measures, patient-reported measures of treatment burden that can be used to ascertain that. There are, uh, if, if you have adequate capacity to do the work of being a patient, then you should be able to access care and enact self-care. So there are measures of uh, uh, access to care and satisfaction with that continuity of care that um, uh, could uh, measure the extent to which it is difficult to get the care that patients need in your system. And then more distal the outcomes, and I think is the idea of moving away from only looking at disease-specific outcomes and looking at functional capacity and quality of life as ultimate outcomes, um, uh, and so the connection or the, the, this body of outcome measures, it begins to resonate a little bit more with the principles of minimally disruptive medicine than the current approaches, which have to do more with disease control. Okay, thank you. Dave, Paul, uh, um, bringing you back in here, somebody is wondering what difference it makes to have patient advisors working with clinicians. Um, what's it like to work with Victor? No, I didn't mean that quite that way. But um, what 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 difference does your presence make, uh, and perhaps any of the other patient advisors who are uh, engaged in this? You know, it um, it's it's been an interesting uh, number of years as we have uh, met as an advisory group. Uh, we have a, a a group of about eight of us on average, and you know, to be able to provide feedback to researchers. I, I know for myself and, and other, I speak for some of the others in the group, we feel it's a way to give back, you know, and it's a way that it's an active um, response to this whole, you know, what we're considering here, and that is improving, you know, improving the situation for, for patients across the board. So that whole, you know, the mutuality 
the conversation opens up between researchers, doctors, patients. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer. I think we should have been doing this a long time ago. I think we all step back and, and see this as such a benefit um, to be able to, uh, you know, we give feedback on decision aids that uh, researchers are using, you know, what's the best way to, uh, you know, how does something appear to the patient? Uh, and getting that patient's perspective, I think, has been uh, a real, uh, you know, uh, situation that's been beneficial for the researchers. But then we as patients sit back and say, hey, we're, we're here, you know, doing something about uh, the future. Mm -hmm. It's very empowering. That's great. Thanks, Dave. Victor, several questions uh, in the chat uh, that you're also looking at here on the screen. How do we get clinicians to buy into this? Uh, Andrew referred to kind of culture change, behavior change. Some people are wondering about some of these tools in the hands of other providers so that we're not just talking about physicians. Uh, we also hear more and more about even peer-to-peer -peer, uh, these days. Um, and uh, I don't know what uh, you're, you're doing the good hard lead work of showing kind of what tools people can start to work with. Um, how, are you, how are you changing minds and uh, what can organizations even do to start almost like start a little mini <laughs> campaign and thinking in their own organizations? So there, there, are, there are two realities uh, in this work. One is that in order to develop these tools and, and experiment with them, we recruit from the uh, willing. And uh, ev most clinicians remember why they went into healthcare and, um, and derive tremendous uh, pleasure and satisfaction from uh, having um, moments of great meaning and, and connection and care with their patients. And uh, one of the things that these tools do create or recreate uh, is those conversations that bring meaning uh, to people's lives. And we have an epidemic right now of burnout among, among clinicians, and anything that we can do to bring meaning to their work, I think, is, uh, is positive. So we have a, a number of willing participants in our work that are willing to give time and effort to, to help us develop these tools. But then it's a time of uh, implementing these tools and disseminating these tools and putting them into the into routine practice. And, and the challenge is now is how do you engage clinicians who have not been part of the development process in using these tools? Uh, how how, what happens when these tools speak to a different philosophy than the, for instance, the metrics that they're being held accountable uh, in terms of quality or cost of care or efficiency pressures, um, both at the leadership level of those institutions as well as the frontline folks. And it's, it's at that point, it's incredibly frustrating because we've, met, we've allowed healthcare to buy into ideas of care um, and contracts and, and, and put people in positions where fundamental care, seeing the patient in clear focus and, and, and caring for and about the patient in a careful and kind way is, a, is in contradiction with the policies and what is rewarded at the encounter. And there's no way that a simple tool like what we've shown today, that the creativity of our research team um, and, the, and the enthusiasm of a few can, can, can change it. At the same time, it is often the enthusiasm of a few with some good ideas in mind that has changed anything. And I think uh, we might be at approaching a point in which a fundamental shift in healthcare will be necessary to bring care to healthcare. And uh, I've lost uh, hope that clinicians will do that. I, I expect patients, actually, and the public to do it. And I'm expecting one of these days we'll wake up to a patient revolution. And I really hope I'll be on the right side of that, uh, <laughs> of that battle. Thank you. Casey, what about other kinds of uh, – there's a question or two at least in here about – um, people really want to make sure they sort of get how this might work. So you showed the ICANN tool. Uh, I know on the uh, Minimally Disruptive Medicine website, and I've seen these before, your other kinds of decision aids. Uh, and um, what can you kind of mention some of the other sorts of resources that a clinician, uh, some people are asking about a social worker, and others might use um, if we're talking about any number of chronic health issues? Sure. So, um, like I said, I think ICANN just really opens up the conversation. Um, there are there's some resources around the tool um, on our website that can be found. Um, and 
you know, I talked about mostly patients and clinicians using this, but I know I saw a, a question specifically about social workers, um, and they can use it too. What we found is really nice is that um, it works with a variety of health professionals in the healthcare team, and certain things that uh, clinicians don't necessarily feel comfortable addressing, a social worker may help feel comfortable addressing, and so this works well in a team model. Um, and social workers sort of have that natural ability to tap into a lot of community resources and be helpful in that way. Um, that VA pilot I mentioned, um, one of the social workers there is actually learning uh, some of these coaching techniques to apply some capacity coaching for their patients who they're working with in minimally disruptive medicine. And then I think um, you sort of hinted to other potential tools. Um, our, our research group in, I think you'll have links to the, the website for that. Um, if a conversation that you have with ICANN opens up, for example, my diabetes medication is burdensome in this way, there's a whole host of specific shared decision-making tools there, for example, like diabetes medication choice. And let's look at how these diabetes medications compare across um, patient important outcomes. Thank you very much. A question about commu a community of complexity model. Is that, some, that's, is that something you said? <laughs> yeah, it's something that's, that I said, but with, with my Peruvian accent. So it was the uh, cumulative complexity model, and uh, it's on the Minimal Disruptive Medicine website. Okay. And it's a, it's a model that links uh, three things. One is the, the, the state of balance between patient capacity and workload. Um, how that balance uh, determines whether patients will be able to access care uh, and uh, use the care that is available and enact self-care. Then, then it links if that care is effective and people are able to access and use it and enact it, then people should have better outcomes. And if they have better outcomes, they should have less illness and therefore more capacity. And if the system was working, they should have le an, uh, a uh, less intensification of treatment and they should have less work. This model also uh, uh, predicts that if you, instead of real outcomes, you measure, say, disease control outcomes, and they're not good, you might get more treatment, uh, and well, you may still be sick, making an imbalance of workload and capacity. And if you can't have the capacity to do the work that your doctor expects you to do, you'll get labeled, and the label that you'll get is being non-compliant. And so this model predicts the appearance of that label and also suggests that ways forward to prevent or remove that label from people uh, by right-sizing the care, or in other words, by doing minimally disruptive medicine. Okay, thank you very much. So cumulative complexity, and we are trying to, it is on the Minimally Disruptive Medicine website, and we can get that uh, overall link for you. If you can't find it immediately, and if we can't find it right away, um, I don't know if uh, Casey can put her hands on that link, but we'll get it into the resource document. It looks like it's, Madge, it looks like someone from uh, has actually just posted a link to that article in PubMed, uh, so got it. participants see, should be able to see that. Per, per, uh, perfect. Okay. And we'll also capture that for the resource document. So, Andrea, I'm wondering, what are you hearing here um, in a way that when you think about, we're talking about population health, triple aim, what else might this be sort of nudging in the way we're going about things right now here, um, thinking about primary care? Some people are saying, well, how is this all going to, how does this happen in 20 minutes? And encounters. There's a lot of concern that time, bandwidth, um, you know, Victor referred to this earlier today as kind of kind conversations, and I don't know that everyone always experiences their in, uh, healthcare encounters as kind, or that's the operative term, even though it certainly should be. Um, I don't know, just any, any thoughts you might have about sort of where this fits. I think people are intrigued, and they're trying to figure out kind of where to land this, you know, in, in our system today. Well, um, many people have already mentioned this, and that is that this can't fall to physicians if we want it to be widespread only. Um, some physicians do it as a matter of course. Some physicians would be happy to adopt it if they had enough time. Many people work in systems where that's not going to happen. And so I think Victor's idea of lots of people can help with this, and it could be out in the community, and it could be part of 
our 100 million healthier lives work, and it could, it could come from many different places. And I think that there's some very good work to be done in showing that it can come from the community and it can be helpful and effective. So much of the earlier peer support in many different disciplines um, without having the benefit of being really specific here drove in this direction. So we have the resources. They need to be mobilized and focused, I think, a good bit more. And um, boy, I'm looking forward to it. It means so much to people. Go ahead, Victor. Um, there is a part of our program. So for the last 10 years, we've focused on how do we try to um, uh, make it happen in healthcare with with the healthcare people that we have and with the systems that we have. And for the last uh, two or three years, and with the support of a, a kind benefactor, we've been developing a similar effort that is strictly occurring in the community. So how do we prepare people before their patients or while they're patients, but in the community? How do we prepare them to come to healthcare uh, in a way that that they will get the conversations that they need to get the healthcare to fit their context? And we host care conversation workshops now in public libraries and other settings in which uh, we train uh, people to identify what are those difficult questions they want to ask their clinicians or, or things they want to tell their clinicians because they think it will affect the way their care will, but they can't. They don't think that the clinicians will have the time or the ears to, to listen to that question. And we teach them as you would uh, take someone through a walk in the forest. You know, it may be scary, but if you can just show them the ropes, you know, they'll be able to go through it. We teach them very carefully how they bring that, to bring that up and how to do it successfully. And at the same time, sort of as a healing curriculum, creating a, a peer a community that understands that they're on the same boat and that healthcare is not meeting their needs, and so creating the, uh, I think, the seeds for a revolution. Thank you very much, um, Dave. Uh, I'm um, curious whether or not you feel that patients like you, or maybe in in you know having different issues, uh, but often kind of in the same boat of of possibly feeling life has been upended and that um, work, the work of being a patient has suddenly taken over. Um, what, what do you envision when you think about how do patients even begin to uh, gain the skills to be almost a, a different actor uh, in, in these environments? Because I think um, lots, of, lots of people are not used to uh, wa walking into you know, a medical environment and having a so-called shared discussion. Some people feel reassured when they're told what to do, maybe not deeply, but at that moment. And, um, you know, how do, how do patients themselves, you know, feel on solid ground uh, in engaging in this? I, I do think there's a certain kind of awareness uh, building needed for patients as well. What do you think? You know, years ago, I, when I was in college, I had a professor who, you know, the students, we, we were all whining about how difficult things were. Oh, it's so hard. The student's life is so difficult. And he said, you know, <laughs> realize that you become good at what you practice. You can become a better student over time. You get used to the expectations, um, you know, you modify your behavior, uh, hopefully, and, you know, you move on. And I think as a patient that is introduced to the realm of chronic illness, you realize soon that you're probably not dealing with just one chronic illness. You're dealing with side effects from medications, you're dealing with maybe something else that comes, that shows up that you weren't expecting. And in the beginning, you're really overwhelmed and you don't know how to do this. You know, the work is really, I mean, when uh, our team has talked about capacity, I just love, you know, that, that, that identifies what this is really about. And it is overwhelming at first, but you can get better at, you know, arranging your life around this. And I think uh, what I really like about the minimally disruptive approach is that, you know, if we can get doctors on board, if we can get medical staff on board to help uh, patients, you know, not feel so overwhelmed. You know, one of the things I had to realize, you know, you, you uh, walk out into the parking lot after a, an appointment, and this certainly happened more in the beginning stages of my situation, and I would you know, be questioning myself, what did he just tell me? You know, what did she just 
mentioned that I needed to be, you know, you had got a lot of uh, hard copy in your hand, but you're also trying to, you know, just deal with an overwhelming amount of information. Well, after a while, you know, through familiarity in the system, through familiarity with your physician, um, Andrea had mentioned, you know, her physician being really good at being able to be there and listen to the story. You know, I think that's kind of what I got was, you know, paying attention to the context in which the patient is struggling. And, uh, you know, I just think, and I want to encourage, you know, the patients out there that are listening to this program that it, it can get better, and it does get better. You know, over time, you become better at asking the questions that need to be asked and, and, and advocating for yourself, being an advocate. And if you're not a good advocate, to bring, you know, a supportive spouse or friend with you to the appointments. But uh, I just feel like over the period of time in which I've dealt with this, I really feel, you know, heck, I run a small business here in Rochester, and I was taken away from my career as a result of my health, but now I'm able to, ma I'm able to manage things because of the fact that I've learned how and I've gotten the answers, and I am part of a, a team of people. Now, that's not to say every physician I have experience with now, um, <laughs> you know, is able to uh, relate to me in such a way that, I feel uh, empowered, and I'm not, uh, <laughs> not trying to disturb anyone here. You know, it's just not across the board that you run into uh, physicians that, you know, are fully supportive and are willing to uh, have this partnership. But when it occurs, that leads to uh, patients, I think, really getting better, really getting better, despite the fact that they have a chronic illness that they're not going to be cured of they really can get better. Their lives can improve. And I certainly have lived that my, myself. That's terrific. Well, I think your, you know, testament and uh, testimony here is, is very, very powerful. Uh, thank you, Dave, very much. All right, John, a quick uh, mention from you about some stuff coming up, and then we're going to go around the horn with final remarks. And I think uh, from Victor and Casey, I think maybe you can start thinking about what, in what ways can even this audience here be helpful to some of, uh, we're trying to be helpful, you and your team, uh, to folks out here. How can folks continue to engage with you. John? Yeah, uh, here at IHI, we'd like to invite you to the 17th Annual Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office, Practice, and the Community, which we often refer to as the Office Practice Summit. Um, visit IHI.org slash summit for more details, but it starts on March 20th and goes to the 22nd down at the World Center in Orlando, Florida, where some of you may have attended the National Forum uh, in December. And if you enroll by f uh, February 5, you can save $100. All right. Thanks so much, John. All right. Let's let's do some wrap up. Um, uh, Dave, I'm going to take your uh, since we're getting to the top of the hour, I'm going to take your most recent comments as kind of the wrap up there. And thank you again for participating. Um, Andrea, your thoughts, and then I'm going to turn to uh, the Mayo team, uh, others. Yeah. Well, just briefly, I feel like um, I, we at IHI are very eager to make this a very widespread practice and help with the adoption. So any ideas that come in, we will jump on. Okay, thank you so much, Andrew, for being part of this. Uh, Casey, lots of, um, <laughs> I think we could we could be busy here for a while. We've got a lot of additional questions, people wondering about the relationship between self-management support and minimally disruptive medicine. I think these are, uh, we're on a kind of a span here and a continuum, but uh, any final words or what we might look for next and, and or how can people on today's call be helpful uh, to the team, the care unit? So uh, a couple of things um, I think that people out there listening can do. Uh, the first is please visit uh, the website, look at ICANN. It's a, new, it's a new discussion aid. It's available for free for use to print off there. Um, take a look at it, see how it might fit in your practice or with your entire healthcare team. Um, look for an announcement there in the next couple of weeks that we'll be hosting a workshop in late September for participants to uh, get some better hands-on experience with some of these tools and ideas. And then finally, I think if nothing else, um, as healthcare professionals out there listening um, can do is to take a look at their patients that they're seeing um, and simply ask, does this treatment plan 
that I'm considering with this patient together fit with what this patient values doing and being in the world? And I think that little simple action um, could change a lot. All right. Thank you very much, Casey Bomer. So glad that you could be with us today. Victor, you get the last words here uh, in terms of um, how do you want to, I'm curious, how do you want to stay in in touch with, because that's part of what's got to go on here is got to get some champions all over the place. Yeah. The the care unit is open. Uh, Our our, uh, websites are open. Uh, There are a number of ways of connecting to us through them. Uh, We collaborate. We have generosity as a key factor in the way we've been able to be successful. But at the end of the day, it's the notion that all of us can work together for a particular vision of healthcare. And the vision of healthcare that I hope people can work forward to is one that is careful and one that is kind. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Victor Montori, Andrea Capsino, Casey Bomer, and Dave Paul. Fabulous uh, that you've been part of our program today. Thank you, audience. It's always wonderful to see your interactions with one another. I hope we got to most of the questions. Uh, anything burning, uh, let us know by emailing info at IHI.org. And if when you download the slides, you'll see that our panelists have their own email um, addresses there as well if, if you uh, have a follow-up question. Uh, Next up on WIH on February 18th, we're going to talk about morality and how to reset the mission of quality improvement. I would say what we're talking about today is in part very much in that uh, realm, and we're going to hear from our own Donald Berwick, and a special treat, his daughter, his physician daughter, Jessica Berwick, is also going to be on, so we're going to get kind of a generational view on uh, what's working with the purpose and mission for QI and where we need some adjustments. Um, Again, a reminder, you can download the chat, any slides we use from our discussion today when you log off. There's also a brief survey that we really hope you'll fill out. We always want to make WIHI better for you. Check out the archive pages for WIHI. Uh, As of tomorrow morning, you'll find the audio of this program plus all the resources. You can also find the podcast on iTunes. You subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, please write a review on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI. So there are a whole wonderful group of people who help make WIHI possible behind the scenes. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. Special thanks today to IHI's Joanne Endo and Mayo's Kirsten Fleming, who's been doing some tweeting. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for joining today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day.